You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. My guest for episode 65 is Jarek Bischoff. He started out as a bass player in the late 90s, touring with the bands The Dead Science and Parenthetical Girls, also playing with the Degenerate Art Ensemble. Increasingly through these projects, he found himself arranging parts for strings and other instruments. His first solo album came out in 2006, with a follow-up credited to the band name Ribbons in 2008, and then a half-album side called Under the Sour Trees in 2009. But we're going to focus today on his two recent albums, for which he has more or less transformed himself into a full-on strings composer. You're right now listening to a song called Automatism from his most recent album, Cistern, which came out in 2016. We're going to start off by talking about the title track from that album, and we're going to look back to his album Composed from 2012 for a song called The Nest. Now, on Composed, he had a lot of guest vocalists, including my former guest here, Craig Wedrin. The guest on The Nest is Mira Zeitlin. For our third song, we're going to quickly discuss a cover tune, a string arrangement of Black Star, the David Bowie song written for a tribute album that he put together with Amanda Palmer. The song features Anna Calvi. We're going to conclude by listening to another song from Composed, It's called Eyes and features singer David Byrne. To learn more, check out jerickbischoff.com. To learn more about this podcast, visit nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you like what we're doing, please go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic for a little bit of support. So I will have played a little of automatism to get into this, which seems to have a lot in common with your other earlier instrumentals, you know, the ones on Royals, the ones on uh, Under the Sour Trees. I really like your way of writing string instrumentals because it has more in common basically with rock. I mean, I, I was in composition school for a while myself, and it's a very different approach, I think, between starting in a recording environment or just thinking as if you're starting in a recording environment and starting with a repetitive sound and then do cool atmospheric stuff over it. Like, you know, sort of the Peter Gabriel passion, sort of very different than, you know, Mozart. I don't come from a classical background at all. Like, I really don't have that much knowledge in that field. But yeah, you're right. I came from a rock background. And not only that, but the classical music that I was hearing was film scores. And you kind of forget how amazing the arrangements are just because you're listening to the vocalist, but like Nat King Cole and those kind of crooners and that kind of stuff is where I was getting my somewhat classical music, but I didn't even realize I was paying attention to it. And then when I started dabbling with more orchestral instruments, I started hearing these familiar sounds and I went, oh man, this is awesome. Let's get into Cistern. Before we play it in full for the folks, give background sort of where you were at with this 2016 album. This is your second album that's kind of a full-on classical arrangements thing, quite a bit more developed in certain ways. So say something about that project and about this song in particular. Back uh, about five years ago, I I think, I happened to be doing this residency in Port Townsend, Washington, and there's an old army base there called Fort Warden. And on that army base, there's a gigantic cistern underground that, for those of you who don't know what a cistern is it's a just a water tank and this one is a two million gallon empty water tank underground and when you crawl down the one manhole that you can enter through you find yourself in complete darkness and with a 45 second reverb decay so you snap your fingers and you hear that sound for 45 seconds 
and you play a violin and you hear that sound for 45 seconds. So there's been some amazing recordings made down there through the years. Most notably, I think, was Pauline Oliveros' Deep Listening. So I was really wanting to get down to that space while I was doing this residency. And I got permission to go down and... The first day I spent down there just by myself, I set up my recording gear, kind of got things settled, and I had a guitar in my hand. And the very first sounds that I made, the song Cistern, I just started playing that cello line on the guitar and singing the viola line over the top of it. And something about that space brought that piece of music on, and I had never written so much like that before. And just the second I started making music in that space, I realized that it was going to be, you know, a whole journey and a a whole record. And I wasn't sure how it was going to come together, but that space informs how you compose so much that, yeah, it just left a great impression on me.
Yeah, so I hadn't wasn't thinking of this viola part in terms of a voice doing that, but that being the foundation for everything and it kind of builds from there. I mean, it's a very I don't want to say symmetrical, but you know, you've got your bass instruments do it one time through, then you get your viola enter, then you get your violin sustained, then you get your super high violins, and then start over and just keep layering like that. Yeah, I've never written a piece quite like that or hadn't before doing this project, but I really liked the idea of things repeating, but kind of slowly getting off of repeats sometimes, or or things being connected and then certain things having longer repeats over the top of it and almost thinking of it as a loop pedal kind of thing. But I feel like loop pedals are limiting in the way that, you know, you can't just slowly change the loops. That's why I've always been frustrated with loopers. But with this, I could kind of think of starting a loop and then having a longer loop on top of that and then a loop that was one and a half times as long as the next one and and then also slowly building throughout. Well, and especially you've got, even just in the initial riff, the fact that on those last two notes that you sustain them kind of extra long, like this could be ending the song or something. But no, 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 it's just part of the repeated part that we're just going to drag that bit out every time. It's a funny time signature, actually. Yeah, I don't know why that's the way it came out, but probably something about being in that cistern and hearing that, 45 second reverb decay coming out is like those last two notes are so close together that they need a little more space to resonate or something i I don't know why that yeah why that happened it's just like you're sucking a little more juice out of it just a little more and then then you can go back and start over with the next part yeah absolutely the song is pretty much cut in half so you've got this build so it all goes away and then you've got you know this is three minutes in it all comes back, and, and now horns, you add a whole second half of the orchestra here. Yeah, I kind of feel like the first section is the warm-up, and then the second section is like the real drama, <laughs> you know? And the, uh, you know, I was trying to listen listen very carefully. Say something about the little percussion here, that you introduce it at about a minute in, and I, am I hearing that? <laughs> is it even there? But then you tinkle it more. What is that tinkling? There's bells. Some high, like, Tibetan bells that I bought in some hippie store in Boulder, Colorado. I found those bells, and I was like, hmm, this could be something uh, for down the road. And I bought, like, ten of them. So, yeah, when we recorded, we did very minimal overdubbing. Pretty much everything was done live. But that was something that I wanted to add on later because that's the kind of thing that gets into every single mic and makes mixing an impossibility (laughs) (laughs) and you can never turn it down because it's so high it just pierces through yeah exactly so i overdubbed that and i had actually been playing that piece live for a while before recording it and when i play it live it's a really really fun thing to do i i'll usually have a couple friends at, at the show or i can pull in a few people, and I pass out the bells to those people, and I'll conduct the bell stuff live, but the bells happen out in the audience, so it creates this really three-dimensional effect. And so when we recorded it, I made sure that they set up microphones kind of all around and that we could still 
walk around in that space and just kind of be changing the sound, give it more of a, that three-dimensional effect, even though it's still just in stereo, just trying to create more of a swirling atmosphere. All right, so I know for the, the harmonies, you're not going, you don't have your music theory book out, right? You're not. <laughs> I'm not a theory dude, that's for sure. I noticed a, a cool, I mean, it's a pretty traditional harmony, but some nice thick parts, and then one little bit I wanted to play for you, so it's about two minutes and 13 seconds in, where there's especially kind of atonal bit in the first violin. Yeah, that little, like, what's going on there? So when I was down in the cistern, I guess demoing this thing out, unbeknownst to me, I was just kind of messing around. But I recorded myself playing the guitar, and then I recorded myself singing the viola line. And then after that, I grabbed my violin and I just started improvising that exact line, actually. And I'm not much of a violinist. I play violin with just one finger the whole time. I just kind of slide one finger up and down. So that's a direct transcription of what I played on violin down in the cistern. So it was just the note that came up. But you know what? I Especially in high frequencies, I love those two violins going just super close friction, that kind of dissonance. So it's a half step apart? or uh, It's a whole step, I believe. Okay. A whole step is, as you probably know, not the most consonant of sounds. In a seventh chord or something, it can be very not, you know, it's, it's not that weird. But just putting it up there, having this, you know, it's like a little wash of something sinister has yeah. entered just for a little bit and then floats away. It's mostly a very beautiful tune, but the fact that you can put little things like that in it and it, it doesn't sound outside of the sonic universe. It's not, I barely noticed it. I don't think I heard it the first or second time. Yeah, yeah. I like dissonance a lot, but I like using it in hopefully fairly subtle ways where you're not getting bashed over the head with it but there's just things that make it a little abnormal for sure and when you get into the horn section i mean definitely you've got some some chops some experience here with how to do orchestral arrangements you know it's so difficult with so many of those instruments have just weird volume ranges you know so one part i noticed so about five minutes in So that's French horn is taking the lead there. Is that right? Or Yeah, I believe it's French horn and trombone with a mute in it or something like that. And is it doubled by a, like a high flute? Is there something doing the octave above there? It sounded like there was something sweetening up a little bit. Yeah, I think it was just like a few trombones and a few French horns, if I remember right. And, you know, done in an octave, I believe. Most of that honestly comes from working with great players. I, I did this record with Contemporaneous from New York and strings. I mean, I'm always writing a ton for strings, and so I've got a pretty good handle on how to write for them. But horns is, I mean, you're bringing it up. It's a beast. It's a total different thing. You really have to think about breathing. You have to think about register a lot more. And something like this, especially where they're playing for a long time, playing long notes. That's a terrible thing to ask of a horn player. But those guys were just so good that they just made it work. They really 
kicked ass on it. Yeah, I remember in, in composition school, one of my, I did like a little horn trio thing and my instructor said, you know, this would sound great, these clusters, if it were strings. <laughs> yeah. Asking trombone and forget what else was playing, but you know, to do these sustained tight chord clusters, like they're not going to vibrato, it's not going to have the same, you know, it's not going to be instantly beautiful. It's just a much more challenging thing. That's the next, well, I mean, that and and woodwinds are both just, I don't know. I think because I'm a bit of a string player myself, it just all makes a lot more sense to me. But man, horns and woodwinds are just crazy. Every time I make an arrangement, I kind of cross my fingers. And when I hear it the first time, I go, oh my God, this is this could be terrible. And I'm getting the hang of it. But yeah, it's I'm either getting the hang of it or I'm getting to play with better and better players, so it just doesn't matter as much. Well, let's introduce the second song. We've got another orchestral one. You know, it's got flute, it's got a, the whole nine yards in it still. From your album Composed 2012, uh, we're going to do The Nest, and we'll play the vocal version for them, but, you know, you have a whole separate released album with just the instrumental. So if we want to focus in on little instrumental gestures, we can just play the instrumental version, you know, 15 seconds for them. Say something about this project and about this song in particular. Actually, I got a Facebook reminder just the other day telling me it was eight years ago that you had this concert. And that concert was my 30th birthday. And on my 30th birthday, I I had never performed with an orchestra or like really, I'd written one thing for an orchestra, but that was it. And for my 30th birthday, I thought, you know what, I'm going to write a bunch of orchestral pieces, and then I have so many incredible friends that play orchestral instruments, I'm going to give them all a call and hire them to play a concert of my music, and I'm going to rent out Town Hall in Seattle, and I'm going to have my orchestral debut done DIY style. Are you still paying off the debt from that? Actually, you know what? Every time I take a big chance like that, the return, not only financially, but emotionally, is the best. Every time I go, there's no way I'm going to be able to pay the venue back and pay all these people. And then at the end, I'm like, what? We're breaking even? (laughs) Or I might be able to pay for my cab on the way back, too? You know, it's incredible. And so I did that concert, and... Then as soon as I did that, I just completely, really fell head over heels for doing that kind of music. And most of the pieces that I wrote for that turned up on my record Composed, which is my first orchestral record. And I was considering trying to sing all the songs myself, but I really don't enjoy singing, especially at that time I didn't enjoy singing and I, I don't enjoy writing lyrics all that much either. So I thought, why don't I do this more the style of a, you know, old-fashioned record where I hear specific singers in my head and I try to write melodies specifically for those singers. And then the singers write the lyrics and they bring their incredible voices to it. I was terrified to ask people to do it, especially people like David Byrne and Caetano Veloso and, you know, heroes of mine. But for whatever reason, they all said yes. So I got these amazing vocalists on my record. This song, The Nest, is particularly cool because I worked with Mira on this. 
And with all of the singers, I had very specific melodies in my head of how it should go. But as any good collaborator should, I also left it open like, hey, if you have a melody that comes to your head and you really enjoy singing it that way, then let's ditch mine. I'd rather use yours. And Mira was the only vocalist that had something completely different in mind for the song. And when I went to her place and recorded it, I was sitting there like in a sweat going like, oh my God, this isn't what I was thinking. And the whole time I'm going like, oh God, I don't know about this. And then as I started mixing it, I was just like, oh my God, this is incredible. So she really brought not only her own voice, but her own artistic voice to it. And I just absolutely love what she did. Going back for just a second, the reason I put out the instrumental versions is right before people started coming back to me saying like, yeah, I'd love to sing on this. I probably had a little bit of a panic or I don't know what it was, but I was working on getting the mixes right and everything. And I just suddenly went, you know what? These songs, even without their melodies, they kind of work as is. Maybe it should just be an instrumental record. And I feel like it kind of does work that way. And so I thought it'd be fun to release it as a as an instrumental record as well. But I prefer the, the vocal version. All right. Here's The Nest featuring Mira.
All right, so the string instrument that is carrying it forward through this waltz. Yeah. I assume this is you playing. Is it a guitar? What is it exactly? It's a ukulele. Okay. Yeah. That's another thing is uh, with that record, ukulele was this great tiny instrument that I could carry anywhere. And so I was just carrying it around when I was traveling and started writing music on it. And so ukulele has four strings. And if you kind of break it down, you can really think of the low string as the cello and the second lowest string as the viola and up to the violins. So this is like a tenor ukulele that's like the same as the bottom four strings of a of guitar? I don't know, actually. I think it was a tenor, yeah. Because I, ha- I have one of the, I've, I played one of those, I have one of the, the standard kind of, what, soprano ukuleles, where the lowest pitch string should be is actually a higher pitch string, and it completely screws, <laughs> screws up your intuitions. Yeah. But, okay, go ahead. Yeah, and so um, almost all of the songs on this record were started with ukulele, that's kind of the the beginning seed of all the songs. And this ukulele that I'm playing is in my favorite tuning, which is the tuning that my first ukulele showed up in the mail in. So a friend of mine sent me a ukulele in the mail from Hawaii, and it showed up in this magical tuning. And I didn't ever think like, oh, you should figure out what the real tuning of a ukulele is. I just always left it in that tuning. So almost all my songs are in that tuning, which is just the bottom two strings normal, and then the top two strings both down a half step. So that opening chord, that that is all open. It just practically wrote itself. It did write itself. I've recently got other ukuleles and put them in regular tuning. But yeah, I prefer that other tuning because it just has a sort of whimsical quality to it. And anytime I like to use ukulele because, first of all, it's already in a different tuning, but then it's in a really different tuning with this other tuning. And um, I like ukulele because... I just put my fingers in weird places and magical chords come out. And I'm so familiar with bass or guitar. If I stick my fingers down on the fretboard, I already know what sound is going to come out before I strum the chord. So with the ukulele, it's just kind of this magical thing to break the mold of what I what I do. So a very dreamy tune. It's a fast waltz. It sounds like is there ballet influence here? What what's going on? Is it when you enter the the realm of as a rock and roll guy doing classical? I don't know. Do you listen to a lot of classical, or is this kind of stuff seeping in from the unconscious? In other words, you know, everybody's seen Fantasia or whatever as a kid, and all these things. But unless you've like sat down and studied that stuff, then it just becomes something that kind of sneaks in. I at least I find that you know, just like different ethnic musics or this kind of, you know, that, that just come in gypsy chords, you know? Yeah. It's completely unconscious. Like I remember right when this record came out, there's a couple little motifs in, in this record that are like, I guess some of them are fairly famous classical motifs and they're to pieces I swear I've never even heard, you know, that that just like, I've probably heard them when I was a little kid or I don't know what, but they just came out, 
And a couple of people pointed out like, oh, that sounds like this. And that sounds like that. I'm like, really? I had no idea because I was just writing down the notes that felt right and singing all the parts and it's like, oh, that's a nice melody. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think um, all of this music was just came out extremely organically and naturally. Just I was just in a room and typing in notes in Sibelius and out came this stuff. So the vocals come in about 20 seconds in. When I was prepping for this, I was kind of going back and forth between the instrumental and the vocal version. I started the instrumental and it felt like, okay, we're still doing intro, still doing intro. And then about 40 seconds of like, okay, this has got to be where the vocals come in. No, no, no. The vocals actually come in quite a bit earlier than that. This place where I thought the vocals came in, is a pretty interesting place because when you listen to it instrumentally, let me just play it. It's about just 30, 38 seconds in. So when you're listening just instrumentally, it's like, okay, we've kind of presented the main theme and now we're just having a little quiet section. But the fact that she just like pounds on that and gives this you know, fairly aggressive, well, <laughs> aggressive for this song, vocal rhythm here. I mean, is that part of what she was adding to there? Or did you already kind of have, if not the actual melody, at least the dynamics of like when she should sing and when she should not sing and kind of that all mapped out? Is any of, is any of your original idea left in that? You know, I don't even remember what my melody is at this point, but that you're right. I mean, that sounds like probably the natural place where I was like, okay, this is where the singing's going to come in, where it drops down. But she just went for it. And I think at some point through the creative process, I probably was like, okay, should I snip something here or snip something there and give it that thing? But I love the way that happens because her kind of phrasing changes a little bit there and and it just adds a nice nice flavor to it. She's awesome. So I noticed like on Young and Lovely you've got two two vocalists. So I could picture, you know, if Mira is coming in and doing this thing that you're not expecting, you know, if that happened to me, I I might be like, well, you know, if I'm not completely happy with it, I I wouldn't want to offend her by just removing it entirely, but maybe I could synthesize it. Have somebody else come in and do a vocal part too. Have somebody else, maybe, you know, so so you end up with like, okay, the, this person contributed the verse, this person contributed the chorus, or this person contributed the coda or something like that. But it sounded like the rest of the album was more or less planned. It was not serendipitous in terms of the vocal interactions, say, on that song between the two vocalists. Yeah, that was all planned. I really liked the idea of switching to a female perspective for that, that part of that song. And I really wanted to add my friend Soko in on the record somewhere, and that really made perfect sense of, of a, a spot for her to sing. Yeah, that sounded great. Although I also saw you doing that song live and Sam Mickens, that yeah. it's not that he can sing that high. So I liked giving him the female perspective for a little bit. I, and I know that he enjoys that as well. So back to this one, the kind of the most peculiar part of this I found, again, I think like the first song we've got more or less the same basic thing happening twice as most of the song. In this case, there's two distinct sections. Yeah, say something about this transition. Where you kind of grind to a, a stop, and then it sounds like you might even be about to establish a new time signature, but you don't. Stars, 
Yeah, so you enter, I wrote the hopeful section. I wasn't sure how to characterize this, <laughs> this news. It's not like in a particularly more major key. I don't know the names of my, my modes enough. They both sound, you know, thick chords. Neither of them is, is a straightforwardly happy or anything like this. But what are you thinking in terms of going from that first one to the, to the second one? Why start the second song almost? So I just imagine that second section as the, the chorus. And I have heard some classical music, and especially like uh, hearing really great soloists and like really great pianists and violinists, where um, they like when they're entering a new section, sometimes they'll just slow it down and maybe not quite as dramatically as I did there, but I love that feeling of when it's written down on the piece of paper, you know, it might say to slow down. But you still just, or at least I still see it as just like blocks of time and it's very rigid. But it's a way to remind you that you're listening to humans and you're not listening to a metronome and just kind of giving you a sense of push and pull. And I find that really exciting, especially, I mean, that's one of the great things classical music can offer is the fact that it's humans playing all that stuff and putting wind through instruments and using horsehair to put on metal strings. It's like such a physical, beautiful thing when you really think about it. And and so that kind of push and pull is something that I really wanted to bring out. You said with Cistern, you did most of the orchestrations live. I thought I read on your site or something that this album was pretty much one mic, one thing at a time. Was it the, the ukulele first, or is it the actual like Sibelius piece, the piece that you did on your computer, and then you kind of use that as the guide track? What What is the guide track here? Yeah, at the point of this record, I was really terrible at Sibelius. So it was probably in Sibelius, but a lot of it was probably written by hand. But given all that... I think on most of the songs, I played everything that I could personally play first. And I'm sure I used a metronome for certain sections just to make it easy for everyone to play to it at times. But I probably played all the ukulele and the upright bass and probably played a little bit of percussion and stuff like that just to give people an anchor to to play along to. In tune to. <laughs> yeah. yeah, speaking of the percussion, so when slicing the two halves of the song, you've got, again, when it enters that fairly short chorus there, we've got this big, what is it, an actual kettle drum or a low tom, something, you know, really adds a completely different sonic atmosphere here just, just for that moment that we're going to enter the part that has horns and, and crazy flute jumping around. and, and uh, Yeah, concert bass drum is one of the best things on the planet. If I could tour with one of those things, I would do it in a heartbeat. Just you don't have to mic it, you don't have to do anything, but just giving it a light poof. Uh, just I guess being a bass player, I'm always attracted to low frequencies, but those things, man, it just does something to my to my body that is is wonderful. So, yeah, I might at times get carried away with a lot of like booms and big rolls and things like that. But it's just because I love the sound so much. (laughs) 
do you have a connection with a school or something at this point? I know when I you know, was in college, it's just the fact that you could just go to the music school with a, with a portable recording unit and probably use whatever kettle drums or whatever are lying around there. Whereas now like it would be a big production. I would, I wouldn't, I have to just fake it. Yeah, well, that's actually exactly what I did for this record was I knew certain spots where I wanted a lot of like very specific drum stuff. And for that stuff, I had players actually play along and it wasn't in a school or anything. But I had a friend that was a music teacher at high school and I just called him up and said, hey, can I bring couple microphones down and and yeah. sample every single thing you've got there and he said yep and he happened to be a really great percussionist so he sat there and went you know with the chimes like okay c sharp ding let it ring you know <laughs> so i have my own personal orchestral percussion library that i use and so some of the roles are played live. Some of them are ones where I was like, okay, there, I have this one in my library. I can just kind of scooch there and use them as my own samples sometimes. That's a nice homey feel uh, in terms of like you can buy libraries of that stuff. I you know. know. You just, but, then, but then you have to spend the time <laughs> you have to spend the time familiarizing yourself. Like it's almost too much to have to have this. At least if you record it, you know where it is. You know, <laughs> Yeah, and I find that a lot of that stuff, I don't know what they're doing, but a lot of that stuff sounds like crap. You know, like bass drum, one thing, like you can get good samples of that, but um, bells and chimes, I don't know this, like how they're miking it or what, but I've never found ones that are as good as the ones that I've done just because I think I just have a specific sound in my head of what that should sound like it's not necessarily better it's just the way i want to hear them and um i've never found other libraries that can do it so i was just like ah i'll i'll just uh make my own i really want to do another session and go i mean this was a great offer it was but like going to some kind of fancy music school and getting into their percussion department and getting into all the weird stuff and make my own library would be super duper cool. So is it bells or it like celeste, all the little bells there? So that's that's the samples you're talking about or the handbells? I don't know where I used them on this record. The uh, That's just the glockenspiel that I played that you hit with the hammer and oh. stuff like that, that they have a long sustain and tons of overtones. So if you don't find the the place to mic it correctly so that you're actually hearing the note that you want to hear. Sometimes it sounds like a fourth, like you're hearing the fourth, but then you know that you're hearing using the C, but it'll sound like an F sometimes depending on how you're using it and where it's mic'd. And it's one of these bells are really tricky to, to mic, I, I find. Yeah. Again, is that kind of trial and error for you or is that did you have some training? Are you thinking about the physics of it? How, how much? Um, I just put my headphones on and crank it up and move the mic around until I was like, okay, that sounds good. And no training whatsoever. Not not a, like we're going to put one close mic and then we're going to put a mic that's five feet away so we can get the overtones. I borrowed a couple nice Neumann mics and put them like in a stereo kind of configuration and just moved it around until it sounded good. 
But with everything, with composition, with recording and mixing and all that stuff, it, everything has just been trial and error, no training, except for watching a couple of my friends mix and record. That, that's been helpful. So for this glockenspiel in particular, like what would make you, is that just within your bag of tricks that we have to have little bell-like percussion things? You know, if there's not going to be underlying percussion holding a beat, at least we got to have little little sparkles there. Okay, so working with orchestration to me is exactly like a three-piece band. Like it's exactly the same thing. You have your kick drum, which is say the lowest thing, and then you have the bass guitar, which is the basses. Oh, you can even think about it as the whole orchestra is just a drum set with the kick drum being the basses, the toms being the violas and low horns, the snare drums being the, say, the trumpets and like higher brass, and then the cymbals being the violins. I got into doing orchestration because I was producing friends of mine's bands. And just as you're working on stuff, you, you learn by trial and error, like, okay, why does this guitar sound like crap? And then you realize that there's something else in that same frequency range doing something similar. And whatever is happening between those two it's kind of canceling each other out. You can't really focus on either thing very well. And so I kind of just naturally... Get your notch EQ and screw around with it. Yeah, so you kind of, if you think of an orchestra as that, and that's one thing I really wanted to, when I was writing these pieces, really pay attention to, is like I want to really spend time making sure that all the correct instruments are doing things in their correct registers and and see if it really feels right and it it did and then sometimes you want to screw with that and make something muddy on purpose but so the bells it was just like I was listening to that section and I had a this little pits part that was happening and I couldn't make it loud enough and I didn't want to push it up in volume. So I was like, what can I do to bring that out? And I said, well, it's obvious why you can't hear that very well is because there's all these strings happening all in that same register and the vocal is kind of in the same register. And so I just added the thing in the super high frequency and then those were like turned down (laughs) significantly, but they still seem so loud because there's just nothing else up right. there and it was just one of those moments where you go the physics of music it's a it's a real thing well first of all you're making me want to record a a version of like the brandenburg concerto just on drum kit and actually yeah do <laughs> the it. score out and i'm not gonna play any of the notes i'm just gonna play the rhythms with my with my toms where the violas are yeah uh, so the end of the song you've got these kind of twice through the verse chorus thing and then, whereas it's it's settling down to do that transition like it did with the uh, the drum the first time, but here we just you know let's just sit on the, f- the same two notes and add this strange these cellos. I was almost expecting that to build to something like you don't hear these again that kind of sounds ominous like it's gonna then 
crash into some, you know, the night on bald mountain is going to erupt out of here. But no, no, it just ends. Like, so, so tell me a little what, how that relates to the, the overall theme of the song. My good friend Paris Hurley, who played violin on the whole record, she's the only violinist on the whole record. I kind of didn't let her know what she was getting herself into, and I showed up and she learned the first line and then I was like okay can you do that 16 more times you know and she's like what and then she did that and I was like okay here's the violin two part now can you do that (laughs) she was like what the hell so of course we split it into many sessions but she's the only violinist on the whole record and I felt like she deserved a, a solo at the end of the song and somewhere on the record and a, a moment of just her playing a, one single violin and so the end of this song I wanted to give to her and then her phrasing had these nice gaps and I was like what could go into those gaps and that has I, I don't know why but, but that's that's what uh what happened and you know We've talked about this already. I come from a rock background, and I could have turned into another movement and went to a whole other place in the song, but I like pieces that are song length, you know, like four minutes or or less. And so I was kind of like, well, okay, and we're out. I'll let the next song tell the next story, you know. So yeah, just kind of ended it. Well, yeah, even Cistern, it was kind of a relief after, you know, ma- mapping the structure of that out because it is a six minute song, but it really, it's just because it's slow. It's not that there's that many, you know, sections. It just, it needs that long to get through it twice. That's a trick too with music that's more ambient. It's like, how long can you sustain the listener for these sections? You know, it's like, at what point? do you lose the focus and with a lot of ambient music you're not looking for a lot of focus you're kind of just wanting ambience you know but whatever music i make i find that i i'm always fairly demanding of of the listener and i want the listener to be engaged so that was a big struggle for me for that record was just you know especially a song like the sea's sun where it's just a couple chords and a lot of space in between each of those chords figuring out okay how long can i really do this for and still have people engaged it's different for everybody i'm sure these cistern and uh, the nest here are distinctly different from automatism that that's a more kind of straight up ambient piece such that you establish this thing, and in fact, you know, a couple minutes in, you switch to a different thing that's related. Yeah, it's pretty, but like, how long should it go on? It, should, it sounds like it should go on as long as the credits of the movie take. That's, that's <laughs> exactly. Yeah, very effective. Little. Have you gotten drafted to do anything? You know, can we use this for a commercial or something? Not <laughs> or really. Commercial? It's sad. I I would love that, but I've been told before that the music, oftentimes, especially with like film and stuff like that. I mean, I'm doing film work for a friend of mine and it's a whole different way of making music. Like you're actively trying to stay out of the way of the scene and the dialogue and and it's, you know, it made me realize why a lot of my music hasn't been used for that stuff is that it kind of sticks out. I mean, a lot of the music, yeah. I mean, stuff like Eyes from Composed and 
the nest also it's like if you put that in a tv commercial you'd just be like going what <laughs> holy crap what's going on you know it's more these ambient things that make their effect immediately. <laughs> yeah, but my music is always extremely cinematic, and it's very confusing. Like, I, I'm like, oh, I really want to be doing film. And every time I play a show, people come up afterward like, you're doing film work, right? And I'm like, oh, I would love to, but it's not happening yet. You just need a film with a really mellow montage. You know, so you're the, the views could really be the focus. Yeah. That's not usually the the montage, a sad montage, all the funerals in a row. That the Yeah, lay it on me, man. Yeah, that'd be great. So you're talking about the, the I saw that your most recent posting to Spotify was this thank you for coming excerpts with Craig Wedrin. So that's the soundtrack stuff you're talking about. Yeah, so that it, that's just, you know, a little bit of ambient stuff, different little bit of ambient stuff, like a lot of cool combinations of sounds but definitely doesn't build anything in the way these two songs do. Yeah, they wanted to use all kind of like woodblocks and things like that and non-traditional instruments that we could just kind of bang on and try to create some music out of. And that was a fun project. And I also have been helping him with quite a bit of TV stuff and a lot of movies like comedies and things like that. It was one of my reasons for moving down here to L.A. was that he kind of said, hey, if you want to come here and when you're not super busy, come work for me. I'll take good care of you and I can teach you the ropes of how the movie and and TV show world works. So it's been really cool. Really, really cool. Let's get you your third song out there. We won't talk as long about this. It's not it's not an original. We've already talked about a lot of your general techniques, but you wanted to show one from the Strung Out in Heaven album you did with Amanda Palmer and and again many guests. A David Bowie tribute album, so Black Star. Yeah, say something about how you got involved in this. This is a, this one in particular. I mean, the original song is quite long. Yours is not quite as long as that, but it's it's got a lot of the elements in there. Say something about you know how how you approach doing these arrangements in, in this project. Amanda and I happened to be on the phone the day after David Bowie passed away, and I had just immediately started working on just an arrangement. I was going to be playing a show soon after, and I was like, oh man, it would be so nice to just play Life on Mars at this show. So I I had already started on a string quartet version of Life on Mars, and she was just like, we should do a record and put it out next week. And then I went, uh, <laughs> yeah, okay, well, you're in one city and I'm in another, and um, that's kind of a lot of work. But she does this cool thing called Patreon, which is a crowd-funded thing, and it's hers is extremely successful. And so she just had the funds to make it happen. And so I just sat in and did two arrangements a day for a few days and then just hired some string players, a string quartet, Recorded it. I sent it to her over the internet, and she went into a studio where she was, recorded the vocals, and I wanted a solo on it, and we couldn't figure out what it should be. And we also wanted another vocalist, and we both thought of Anna Calvi, who is a fantastic singer and insane guitar player. And so she was just like this perfect person for for the role 
So yeah, it was uh, really 
crazy project to put together so quickly, but I really got a kick out of doing those arrangements for that because Bowie's songs, he's like one, one of those incredible songwriters that the song can seem so normal. And then when you actually get in there and break it down, you find all these just hidden incredible things about the way the music is working and chord changes that seem so natural. You go, what? That's what they did? That is like the last thing that I would have thought of for a chord change right there. And it's, yeah, just super fascinating and super fun to work on. And it also, I'll plug it, whatever. It's inspired me to start my own Patreon because I see how it can work. Obviously, Amanda has built her career around being super tight-knit with her fans, and I'm not exactly that that way, but I realized working on like classical or orchestral music has always been a patron-based thing, and being connected to, to the people that are listening to your music is important. And it just seems like a really fun, cool way to hopefully create a bunch of new work. There's all this music in my life that I've created that I haven't been able to record just because it's not financially possible for me to record everything that I do. But beside Composed and Cistern, I mean, those are the only like full-on solo records that I've done. And it's been four years between those two and times moving. But I've made since then like music for three theater productions, like two musicals in Germany. <laughs> and and I ended up working with Anna Calvi again on a production with Robert Wilson out in Germany. Just all like I have tons of music that I'm, you know, just as proud of as my other work, but haven't been able to get out there. So I'm hoping to that this will create an opportunity for me to make all my work available. Do you want to look at all at this unique challenges of this song? You know, I noticed you a little bit in about a minute and 46, this guitar enters. It's not even quite an in-tune guitar. It's like <laughs> from a completely different sonic universe. Who's playing that? That's that's Anna Calvi. Oh, okay. Yeah, she plays real bendy, super cool guitar, and and yeah, that was one of the most exciting things about working with her. I was like, I, you're definitely going to play guitar on this, and I know just where it's going to be. <laughs> so yeah, that was great. And as to working on this piece. I didn't even have time to second guess myself on anything. I did this arrangement in half of a day because I had to get on to Space Oddity. And so it's, you know, one of those lessons like you don't have to slave over things for it to turn out well. I, I feel like this arrangement turned out super well and proud of that one. Well, how closely were you, were you trying to follow the original? There are just so many different sections in the original, and we get a lot of those here. Well, you know, I was hearing the, is it the chorus? I haven't listened to it in a while, but like I was hearing that one section as kind of a tango sort of thing. I can kind of hear a little bit of that in the original, but I kind of wanted to blow that up and turn that into a, like a real tango sort of feeling thing. And it's suggested by the chords. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the 
beginning, I don't know what instruments those are. I think they are flutes or something like that, but using the harmonics on violin is such a spooky, beautiful, sort of creepy, but also feels pure in a way. So is that the kind of thing you can only write because you have like the violin in your hand and you can feel where those are? Or That's sometimes the case. Um, I was working on this so fast that I wasn't able to really check, but I also knew that I was going to be working with these string players that are like, I think that was maybe the the first take and they hadn't even read through the song at all. They were just like, they just went for it. And so any note you could give them, they'll yeah, find a harmonic. They'll figure out the harmonic. <laughs> yeah. There are these people that are like, it's one of the luxuries of working in LA. It's like you, you go and show up at the session and they're like, just getting back from working with Danny Elfman or John Williams all day. And then they're like, okay, let's see your music. And you go, uh, okay, here's this thing. (laughs) They're working with all these extremely high end composers. And, and I'm just like, I worked on this for about three hours. I hope it's okay. (laughs) But they're also super supportive and, and stuff. So it's a great part of working in L.A. because these players are just ridiculously good. I recall trying to record some harmonic-heavy stuff myself, and I was, like, retuning the string every note, <laughs> like, punching it. Like, I don't know where all these are, but I can make it. I can, I can make it. Cut the string in a fourth. There you go. That's a pretty high note there. Just <laughs> tune it to what you want. Put a, put a capo on, whatever. Exactly. Yeah, I don't know how they find all those harmonics that... And, and such a small area of error for it. And they just, just so good. We have one more song to introduce this, uh, eyes. So you can tell your David Byrne story from composed, but maybe the, you know, let's treat this as, as a general, I see you've been members of several other bands and it was kind of unclear to me sort of what your role was. I mean, it sounded, it sounded like you started out as just a bass player playing in like a fusion three piece or something like that. Kind of a weird art rock band, yeah. Uh, but then gradually have been adding more. So uh, you've been working up these arranger chops in support of these other bands. Yeah, just adding cellos here or like a flute here. And it was one of those things where, you know, that a lot of bands do where you're like, oh, this song could use a cello. And then the cello player shows up. And they're like, what do you want me to play? And you go, I don't know, just play some cello, you know? And so... (laughs) They're not jazz musicians. They don't know how to do that. You have to tell them what to do. So I started thinking, okay, maybe it would be smart to figure out at least a starting point for them. And so that's where I just started learning how to write for the instruments and just slowly um, over years every band i was working with was getting more and more ambitious to the point of me muting the drums and guitar on a song and it coming back as just orchestral music and i went holy crap i had no idea i could do that so it just came yeah my arranging just came from doing that and then you this this eyes you know kind of a culmination you know this is a full on I don't know what the genre is exactly. It sounds like the kind of thing David Byrne would sing on. Uh, Latin 1950s movie soundtrack kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's why I was able to get all these fantastic singers on the record. Is I think they could all see that I wasn't attracted to having them on the record because 
it's a super famous person or something like that. It was distinctly because I wrote the song and I was just like, this is the song should be sung by David Byrne. I, I mean, it's perfect for David Byrne, but I just never thought I would be able to get David Byrne to sing on it. And, uh, a funny story is I sent him the song and then I remember waking up a little bit early one morning and I stupidly as we all probably do. I looked at my phone immediately, like eyes just killing me from <laughs> from trying to stare at my phone. And there was a email in the inbox, you know, saying, here's the track with vocals. And I was like, oh, crap. So I put on some headphones and I started listening to it. And it was just one of those moments where I was so excited and couldn't believe it. And about a minute into it, my my girlfriend was sleeping, still sleeping next to me. And she's like, what the hell's going on in here? It's so hot. Like, I'm burning up. And I realized that I was so excited that my body heat had risen to some kind of astronomical level and I was a furnace just like <laughs> smothering her. It was hilarious. I was like, I'm sorry, it's David Byrne, it's his track. Oh my god. And she's like, oh shit. But I woke her up with my body heat from being so excited. It was pretty impressive. <laughs> well that's a great intro. Here it is. Eyes.
Thanks so much to Jarek. A very fun, talented, unique way of approaching things. I'm going to link to some things on YouTube so you can see him singing some of the songs and how he acts as band leader. You'll be happy to know that since we recorded this, Jarek has put up his Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash Jarek Bischoff. And that has enabled him to create several things already since we recorded this, including a Twin Peaks-themed Christmas album, instrumentals in the style of the Twin Peaks soundtrack, and a couple of interesting singles. Again, you can get all this at jerickbischoff.com or look him up on Bandcamp. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and you want to hear many more like it, in which case you should go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. Make a contribution. Make this podcast continue to happen. I rely on you. My guest next time will be Pratik Kuhad. He's an artist from India. You definitely want to hear him. So please come back. Once again, thank you for listening. Feel free to reach out to me with guest suggestions or questions about the show at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Until next time, keep on musicin'. This is Mark Lintonmeyer signing off. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. 
Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.